Well, it is great to be with you today. If you are a guest, you don't know that I'm a guest too. So uh, we are here experiencing uh, Resurrection OC for the first time uh, together. But it is great to be here. My name is Russ Kapazinski. Kids, uh, you're here with us today. It's so good to have you in here. We're going to be talking about Psalm 23. But uh, uh, I, do you know who, uh, raise your hand if you know who LeBron James is. Oh, kids, how about Steph Curry? Oh, wow. Well, you know, do you know what Steph Curry and LeBron James and I have in common? We have, there's something we have in common. And some of you kids don't even know who they are, so it's not going to matter. But the adults do. We were, we were all born in the same hospital. Now, I was born there first, uh, so they have to look to me and say, hey, I was born in the hospital that Russ Kapuscinski is born in, but I don't think they've ever said that publicly uh, or even are aware of that fact. Uh, I'm originally from Ohio. I came to know Christ when I was 20, and uh, not shortly thereafter, I was called into full-time service in gospel ministry. I served for five years on Young Life staff in Ohio before I made my way out to Southern California, where I served as a youth pastor, where uh, I got to know the messengers. Uh, a number of years ago, 26 years ago, we figured out when I uh, rolled into uh, uh, San Diego and served at that church for a number of years before moving to Central Florida, where I was ordained in this denomination, served as one of four pastors at a large church there, and was, I had my hand in classical Christian education while I was there as well, and, and I was, as I was deciding to plant a church, whether God was calling us to do that, I was working with a classical Christian school in Central Florida, and uh, God called me to go in the direction of church planting, but uh, as I did that in Southern California with the Harbor Network, I continued to try to... Uh, develop the, the education side of, uh, of really trying to bring a Christian world and life view uh, through education. And so I've always had a passion for that, and I've had a foot in both worlds. And so that's why I've served in the church and in Christian schools. I'm married. Uh, my wife's name is Diane. We've been married 24 years this summer. And uh, I'm told that the 25th uh, uh, wedding anniversary next June better be a whole lot better than what I did this year for the 24th. Um, and so uh, we have three kids, uh, Josh, who is 17, Caleb, who's 15, and Kate, who is 9. And uh, we are at a, every stage of parenting is both delightful and challenging. But as, uh, as we were praying before the service this morning, Jason was standing here, heard this, Daddy, 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 and one of his little ones was running to him, and he's just like, I hope they never stop doing that. Well, it's a little creepy when your 17-year-old son does that, um, but, uh, but the affection there, and, and uh, they don't ever want to lose that. So thank you for letting me be with you this morning. If you want to turn to, to Psalm 23, and if you'll stand with me as I read, we are in a series about singing the Psalms, and this is a great series be looking at these great passages in God's Word that point us to the true shepherd and to how to best know him and to experience his grace. Psalm 23, beginning at verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy, that is steadfast love, shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the one who cared enough for us to send us a good shepherd, not a hireling, but one who would lay down his life for the sheep, Jesus. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit now that you would, just as we as we interact with your word, that we would hear from you, that you would stir up faith within us, that you would strengthen faith, that you would draw us to Jesus, and that we would know the confidence that comes through knowing this shepherd and the life that he offers, that we would know that more fully and more joyfully and with greater delight. And we ask that you would be with us now as we open up your word. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as I, as I begin to think about one of the best ways to begin to frame out this psalm and our conversation about Psalm 23 today, one of the things I want to let you know is that there are different genres of psalms. And maybe you've already talked about this in your series. But what we're looking at today is a psalm of confidence. A psalm of confidence. And so God gives us this psalm of confidence. And he gives it to us because we need to have confidence. Because we live in a world that is constantly trying to rob us of joy. We live in a world in a context Uh, As it states in this psalm, the context is the valley of the shadow of death. Now that's, uh, as I was driving up here today, it didn't quite feel like I was driving through the valley of the shadow of death as I passed Starbucks and as the sun was shining. And, but the reality is, is that we live in the valley of the shadow of of death. The nature of traversing a valley, if it's surrounded by mountain peaks, is that there are going to be times where the sun is shining where your sun is going to be coming down on you. But shadows are going to be cast. And depending on where you are in that valley and what, that, what the terrain looks like, uh, the, the, the reality is, is you are in that valley. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way. But sometimes it really feels that way. And uh, on days like perhaps where the sun's shining in your life and things seem to be going well and it seems like your life is at full sail. The reality is this. And George Bernard Shaw, the Irish poet and uh, literary genius, uh, quoted, was once quoted as saying that the statistics on death are staggering. One out of one person dies. The statistics on death are staggering. One out of one person dies. And so we're in this valley of the shadow of death. As I thought about this, I thought about this story that I heard that was, I initially heard it uh, 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 through a friend who said, hey, you've got to watch this commencement address that this this ex-Navy SEAL, this admiral gave at the University of Texas. A guy by the name of William uh, McRaven. And he, at the 2014 commencement address at the University of Texas, he, uh, he gave this address, and it's actually, it's, it's become so popular that they asked him to put it into a book form, and the book was just released, and the book is called Make Your Bed. And so parents, you might want to write that down if we're having little problems with bed making in your house, but it's called Make Your Bed, and he's talking about how to live in the world to make impact. 
And so he goes through 10 things. And, and, and the ninth thing that he addressed uh, was this thing about singing. And here's what he goes on to state. He says, he starts talking about the, the, the ninth week of training for the Navy SEALs is referred to as Hell Week. Talk about the valley of the shadow of death. I'm sure as you're going through basic training, you really feel like you're in that valley. But he says it, in, in this particular week, in Hell Week, it's, the, it's six days of no sleep. It's constant physical and mental harassment. And he says on one special day during this week, they go to what's called the mud flats. And the mud flats are this area between San Diego and Tijuana. And it's where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana sloughs. A swampy patch of terrain, he says, where the mud will engulf you. He says it's on the Wednesday of mud week, or hell week, uh, that you paddle down to the mud flats and you spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold mud, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. And he said this, he says, and he was recalling Hell Week and he was calling this experience out. You gotta picture this, you gotta picture people that are covered up to mud and, and cold mud. And I guess he's talking about the time in winter where it can dip down and get cooler and the wind's blowing and it's awful. And he said this, as the sun begins to set on this evening during Hell Week, the instructors would begin to taunt us. And they would begin to say stuff like this. Hey, I only need five of you to quit. Just five of you. And we'll end this thing. You can come on, come on out of there, get some hot chocolate and some coffee, and we'll, we'll just end this thing. He goes on to describe it further. He said, the mud consumed each man till there was nothing left visible but our heads. The instructors told us that we could leave if these five men quit. And he said, looking around at the mud, the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun was going to come up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. So you got the picture. So before we go on, I want you to think for a moment. I want you to think for a moment in your own life, these things, uh, these experiences where you experience the part of living in a fallen, broken world the uncertainties of your, in your life, the things that you face, whether they be financial, whether they be health, whether they be fears in parenting or the future. What is it for you where you feel like you're being engulfed? Where you feel like you're being consumed? And you're about ready to cry, Uncle, I quit. I want to tap out. Get me off this ride. What is it for you. He goes on to say this. He says, the chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud that it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing, and we knew that if one man could rise above the misery, the others could as well. So why do I tell you this story? Well, I was just trying to find a great illustration to start a sermon. No, there is actually a point. 
And this psalm that precedes this, in Psalm 22, it is a psalm that graphically depicts the crucifixion of Jesus some 800 years before it takes place. And in the midst of Him being crucified, in Psalm 22:22, it says this, and this is a picture of Christ on the cross. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And then it goes forth to the song that he breaks into. So you and I, if we're going to sing in the midst of life's uncertainties, it's not because one of us in this church or because your pastor, Pastor Bryce Hills, or one of the elders was able to have enough spirituality within them in the midst of life just to start singing as the mud was coming up to his chin. No, it's because the singing Savior, Jesus, who conquered the cross, who conquered death, he is the one who first starts the song in our midst. And so even as we began singing this morning, as Jason led you and me in worship, it was because Christ sang first. The singing shepherd sang first. And he sang in our midst. And because we hear his voice, and it echoes into the depths of our soul, in our heart, in our mind, it stirs up within us this faith to sing in the great shepherd of our souls. And so what song does the great shepherd want us to sing today? And it's the song of Psalm 23. He sings first and he says, Brothers and sisters and those of you who are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, if you're not in the family yet, he says, I want you to know what it means to have confidence in this life. And so here's the sermon in a sentence. We sing because we have confidence in the gospel. We sing because we have confidence in the gospel of God's provision for us, of God's protection over us, of God's pursuit of us in the midst of life's uncertainty. And so let's take a look first and we sing because we have confidence in God's provision for us. It's the first few verses of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You, we have, have become so accustomed to this psalm that it doesn't shock us like it would shock somebody in the ancient Near East. To refer to a deity as a shepherd is mind-boggling. Why? Because the deities in the ancient Near East were those who ruled over people and used humankind for their own purposes. They were slaves. You offered human beings up in sacrifices to the deities and the pantheons of gods. But this God is not like that. This God is a shepherd. And what does that mean? A shepherd's life and vocation is designed in the care for the sheep. This is mind-boggling. He's a shepherd. The Lord, and He is the Lord. This is the covenant God. This is the Tetragrammaton. This is Yahweh. This is the one who rose up and, and laid siege to Egypt, fought compassionate war, began with little plagues and built its way to the big plagues and, and, and trying to, to, to get Pharaoh to release his people. And he didn't come in with the, the, the greatest plague first, but he, he's a compassionate warrior. And it's this God who can defeat any nation who's strong and powerful, who is also loving and kind. 
We have confidence because He is this God. And He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He comes as a servant. And this is mind-boggling. He comes for our care, for our nurture. And He leads us into green pastures. Charles Spurgeon has a great imagery when he talks about this. Can you imagine a shepherd leading a sheep into a pasture, a, a dry pasture where there is no grass? And he said, you picture the shepherd leading them there and the sheep bow their head and they hit the dry ground. He says, we have not this kind of shepherd. We have a shepherd that when the sheep bow their head, they don't know where to start with the feast that's been placed before them. He cares about us like that. It's about renewal, restoration, salvation. His provision is for the renewal and restoration of our soul. And that's what this says. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores my soul. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so it's this renewal. And even the language here in the Hebrew, the language is of tender leading, not of get there, but tender leading. So the question is, if this is true, if the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, how come I feel a lot of times like I want and I'm lacking and my soul still hungers if I'm related to this shepherd? And I don't think the right place to go is that to call into question whether he's your shepherd or not. But I think it's the reality of a couple things we'll look at. One is just the reality of, of idolatry. As sheep, uh, we want to have another shepherd. We struggle with unbelief. And we struggle to really believe. And this is the, this is the, this is the fight. What is the good fight? What does Paul tell Timothy? Is the, to fight the good fight of faith. To maintain belief in God. Belief in the gospel. And so we chase after other things. That, and the idols that we chase after aren't like the wooden gods of the ancient world or the metal and metallic gods of Canaan that represent deities in the heavens, but they're things like power and they're things like money and security and comfort. They're good things. They're things like family. They're good things that we, we, we center our lives around, that we bump Jesus and God out of the center and put these good things. And that's what an idol is. Idol, God made, created everything. He said it's good, but an idol is a good thing that's exalted to the place that only God should have in our life. And one of the most, one of the most fascinating descriptions of what idolatry does to us and robbing us of what this psalm describes was actually described by a gentleman who was not a Christian. His name is David Foster Wallace. And David Foster Wallace uh, was a, a literary genius. I would say. He's a contemporary. He, he died a few years ago. And a 2005 commencement address at Kenyon, he said this, and I want to read this to you. He's talking about the nature of idolatry. And again, we're linking this to why we don't experience the contentment and renewal and restoration in our souls like the psalm talks about. David Foster Wallace says this, because there's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. Now, this guy's an agnostic. He's not a Christian. But he says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. 
In other words, as not making something your chief shepherd. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally uh, take you, before you finally die. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth in front of us daily consciously worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you of your own fear worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will feel end up feeling stupid a fraud always on the verge of being found out but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful although we would say that this is exactly what they are but that they're unconscious and i find that fascinating they're unconscious, they're default settings. See, wherever we were before God called us, before the great shepherd called us, we were set on these default settings, and this is a battle. And so every day we need to say, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, because I am battling the inclinations, this battle in my own heart towards looking towards something else as my shepherd. And those things, as John Calvin says, idols always break the hearts of their worshipers they will always leave you wanting. And so this is one of the reasons. Perhaps another is that we just live in a fallen, broken world. That's just the reality. And so this great shepherd, he tends to us in the midst of a fallen, broken world. There's, there's a lot of, of common grace that God has shed abroad in this, in this world and in this life. And we delight in that and we give thanks for that. But the reality is we live in the valley of the shadow of death. And as such, we experience that. The last thing I just say about why we don't always experience, why we continue to experience this wanting, is I just think a lot of it has to do maybe perhaps with our expectations of what flourishing really looks like. I mean, we live in a place, and in, in our first world, uh, the first world problems we face, uh, they're so different from the ancient world. In the ancient world, uh, there was an infant mortality rate of 25%. Children live, 50% of children died before they hit 10. We live in just an amazing day where we just think, this is what flourishing looks like. We look around at what our neighbors have, we look at particular lifestyles, we look at particular things, and we say, if I don't have that, that's green pastures, that's still waters. And God says, no, this is not, this is not ultimately the green pastures. I am those things. Find this in me. Find it in me. So, the good news is this. Is that he makes us to lie down in green pastures. 
I heard this great, uh, I heard this gentleman, my wife and I went to a marriage conference, and uh, this uh, gentleman was talking about how sometimes when his wife is talking to him, and he would go, yeah, 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 and he, his eyes would start to drift away, and she grabbed him by his ears once, and she pulled it back, and she said, listen to me with your face. <laughs> and God gently, gently doesn't grab our ears, rubs our ears, gets a hold of them, and says, listen to me with your face. Come on. None of that stuff is going to give you life. Come to the pasture. Come to the still waters. And he said this, and I will lead you in paths of righteousness for my name's sake. See, God has connected his name to this. This is the kind of confidence we can have that he is committed to our joy and our flourishing. For my name's sake. And in the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, the prophet Ezekiel says the very same thing, that for my name's sake, I will take from you your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And it's a picture of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and renewal. And God says, I will make you. I will make you. I will lead you. Come on. You can have that kind of confidence that he's going to provide for you. And he's going to prune our lives in such a way to cut us off from idols and other things where we think we're going to find life, but we won't, and turn us back to himself. So that's the first thing. We sing because we have confidence in God's sweet provision in the gospel. But we also sing because of God's protection. Look at the next verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You're with me. You're riding your staff. They comfort me. You know, uh, we, a lot of uh, biblical scholars will talk about how this particular psalm is a psalm that literally deals with the moment of physical death. But they talk about the, the way, how this darkness is described. It's so much broader than the reality of physical death. It's the whole of one's life as they traverse. And they make the point of saying, listen, you're going through the valley you're not abiding in it. You're, you're, you're traversing through it. You're going somewhere. But this is the nature of the valley. But God says, I want you to know that I've got this physical death thing covered for you. It's the, it's the, the valley of the shadow of death. It's not death itself, but it's the shadow of death. And one of the best descriptions I've heard of that uh, was from an old preacher uh, who used to preach uh, at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia by the name of Donald Barnhouse. Donald ba- Barnhouse, when he was serving as a pastor there, he, had, he went through the, the terrible experience of losing his spouse, losing his wife, and he had two young daughters at the time. And he, he as they were driving to the funeral, his wife's funeral, um, with his two little girls in the back seat, he was trying to think about a way to basically frame this out for him as he was wrestling with him himself, just the, the, the turmoil in his own soul of losing his, his wife. And he pulled up to a stoplight, and the sun was coming through, and it was warming the car. And they were sitting at the stoplight, and as they were sitting there, a truck pulled up next to them, and it blocked the sun from coming into the car. 
And as soon as he saw the truck pull up, it was like Barnhouse said, I, it, it, it struck me on how I could communicate this to my daughters. He said, I turned to my daughters at that stoplight and I said, girls, would you rather have be struck and hit by that truck or would you rather be hit by the shadow of that truck? And one of the little girl's daughters said, Daddy, that's a silly question. Well, of course. I, I, I'd much rather be struck by the shadow of the truck than the, the truck itself. And he said, girls, this is exactly what's happened to Mommy. See, Mommy's been struck by the shadow of death. Jesus was struck by death itself. And he rose from the dead. But what Mommy's experiencing right now is just a shadow of death. That's it. And she knows joy because Jesus, the good shepherd, stood in her place. And then he quoted to his daughters, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. <sighs> Christian, we get to live life under that banner of security. My children have died a thousand deaths. They really haven't, but in my mind, they have. I just sent my oldest one off to Italy. And I, I'm sure with modern technology, he's probably going to come back safe and sound. But he may not. But if he does not, he loves the Good Shepherd. And he'll only be struck with the shadow. Like anybody else we have ever known who's died. Oh, he protects us. This Good Shepherd. We have confidence. We should have confidence. But it's better than that. It's better than that. He goes on to say that it's not just hope for the future. And when that shadow of death hits you in reality, he says it's for now when you're walking through the valley. Now he is with you. His rod, which is to fight off uh, those who would attack sheep. And his staff, which, which is guidance through that, through that tricky valley when it gets dark. He's with you there in the midst of it. Uh, recently, we vacationed my family to San Francisco, and we had this wonderful evening where we went to, to Davies Symphony Hall. They were playing the, William, the music of John Williams. It was the only way I could get my kids to go, you know, Star Wars and all that stuff. But they went, and it was just, we went out to dinner by, that, by Davies, the, by the hall, and then we went and just enjoyed incredible music, and they had actually had Star Wars characters there, and Chewbacca came out, and my nine-year-old, when she was invited to hug Chewbacca, flew out of her seat and hugged Chewbacca's legs. And uh, it was just a wonderful evening. And then Dad made the stupid decision that we weren't going to take a bus home. That, oh, we're only a few blocks from the hotel. Let's walk. Well, to my nine-year-old daughter, and perhaps even to the rest of us, the walk from Davies Symphony Hall to our hotel was like through the valley of the shadow of death. We went through some sketchy parts of San Francisco. And my wife was just like looking at me when we're hitting some of these areas like, Wow and you didn't want to take a bus. Uh, but my little girl, at that time, she hitched herself to my leg, and I grabbed her hand. And as we're walking up, and I saw some people who were on this side, I'd switch her over to this side. And as we were getting to a really sketchy area, I scooped her up. 
See, she, maybe foolishly so, but she thought she was safe in her daddy's arms. But she was. Anybody who was going to come for her had to go through me. And the whole time I was directing her, I was aware. I was one block ahead with my vision. I knew where we were going. And I'm moving her around and holding her and guiding her and protecting her. And then I'm talking to her, I'm singing to her and telling her jokes to distract her from what's going on. And a lot of times she didn't even know she was in the valley of the shadow of death, but sometimes she did. This is what Jesus does for us. And sometimes we see it. Sometimes he allows us, he pulls the veil back a little bit and, he, and we see, he allows us to see how he's been doing this with us. As he's traversing, as we, he's walking us through this valley, he sees how he has us here and he's got us and he pulls us tight and he maneuvers us and he, we go up here because he's got you. And if anybody is going to come to you, they've got to go through him. And this is how audacious our God is and how much he protects us. It says he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. How Can you imagine that? Warring factions and one of them just coming out. You want a piece of me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up a banquet right on the battlefield. Right on the battlefield. It's like, that's not a real good strategy. Unless you're so powerful that you could ward off anyone who would encroach upon that table. And so God says, I'm setting up this meal right in the middle of this valley, in the valley of the shadow of death. And I'm going to delight your soul. He anoints our head. This is the language of him just being extravagant with us. This is how powerful he is. He can actually hold a banquet in the middle of a battlefield without any fear of anybody ruining that meal or the experience. So for us, it's just the issue. Are we going to have our eyes on the host of the meal or on the enemies around us? Because when our eyes are on the enemies around us, we shrink back and our emotional life begins to cave. But when we have our eyes on the host who's anointing our head, who's serving us, then we have confidence. Finally, and this is by way of conclusion, not only do we have confidence, we sing because we have confidence because of his great provision and his amazing protection, but because of his pursuit of us. Surely goodness and mercy is not the best translation here. Steadfast love, the word there literally is hesed. It's, it's a word that's pregnant with meaning in Hebrew. And so that the picture is, it's, it's literally the, the covenant word. It's, it's God's covenant promise. It's him putting the ring on our finger and vowing to pursue us and love us until death do us part all the way through eternity. It's God's ultimate promise to us that I will keep my covenant to you. My word is true. It's good. You can bank on it. And we know this because it goes even further than that in this text. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Follow just kind of has this picture of, okay, I'm going to follow. It's not follow. The word there literally is a word that's used in other parts of the Old Testament of one army pursuing another. And how does that happen? They don't just kind of meet. They're, they're on their heels. They're running. They're, they're running. They're sprinting. And to what end? To overtake and to, cap, and to, to lay hold of. And so think about the image, imagery that God 
is chasing after us. He's made promises to love us. And he says, you, 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 can't, you can't mess this up because it ultimately doesn't depend on you. It depends on me. And I am going to chase you down. I am going to follow you and lay hold of you and lay, put, place my covenant love on you and take you in my arms and so that you can never get away. Another kid's story. I don't know about what you guys, but did, did your parents ever play with you? Probably, this game, I'm going to get you. And they say, I'm going to get you. And then you run away. And you're like, no, you're not. No, you're not. I'm going to get you. And you're running. And you kind of want them to get you, but you kind of don't. <laughs> and so you run, run. Well, I used to play this game with each of my kids, my boys. I knew you, you know when it's time to stop playing, but my Kate loved to play. I'm going to get you. And I'd say, I'm going to get you. She started laughing and giggling. No, I'm not. Sometimes she wanted to get away from me. <coughs> but I would always catch her. And when I would catch her, I would take her up and just hold her. And we'd laugh with delight. And I'd set her down. And she'd take off. And she'd say, let's do it again, Dad. Let's do it again. I'm going to get you. This is what God says to us. I'm going to get you. I'm going to lay hold of you. I'm going to take you up in my arms. And I'm going to take you into my house forever. And you will know joy beyond measure. This is a good song to sing. A song of confidence. God's provision for us, His protection over us, and His pursuit of us. Jesus, our Good Shepherd, is so good. He laid down His life so that we could have life. This is the gospel. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what it means to have a God who continually loves us in His grace and mercy. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your kindness to us. Thank You for the confidence that we have because of Jesus. For the provision You've made for us that you make us lie down in green pastures even when we stray, that you bring us back. Thank you for your protection over us. Uh, thank you that you let the reality of death fall on you so it's, it's only its shadow touches us. And thank you that you pursue us, that when we stray, you chase us down. Oh, what grace. Enable us to walk and paths of righteousness for your name's sake because you're such a wonderful God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.